Attention. This podcast contains subject matter that may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From out of the darkness, you hear voices that send shivers down your spine. That feeling of dread is undeniable when you notice the monster under the bed is trembling. The aliens are scrambling to get back to the mothership, and the vampires are refusing to rise. Your reptilian overlords are pleased to force on you two humans they swear are not their captives. Your hosts, Michael and Wendy. This is Eerie and Absurd. Do I get a countdown? Go. Is that the countdown? Go? Yeah. Okay. We're rolling, buddy. You know, for me, the most difficult part of parenting is all the damn math homework. Every week. Or every day. They only have three problems they have to do every day. That I have to do. They're difficult. (laughs) You know, I was trying to help William with it. And I was next thing I know, like, I've got the paper and the pencil. And he's like, yeah, Dad, multiply this to this and then add the one on top. I'm like, okay, but why? Wait a minute. (laughs) I thought I was helping you. He just needs your assurance that he is doing it correctly. I have no idea. Mathisfun.com. That's what I do. Or Google it. Well, that is a suggestion <laughs> that I disagree with. Uh, I guess mathsucks.com was already taken. Maybe. I haven't checked it. I don't even know what to search for on there to, like, solve the problem. <sighs> but, yeah, it's a struggle. Anyway. Welcome back to Eerie and Absurd. I'm Wendy. I'm Mike. Who doesn't know how to do math. I'm terrible at math. (laughs) So have you heard about this jetpack in L.A.? Apparently on August 29th, there was an American Airlines pilot who called the control tower around 645 to report seeing a man in a jetpack about 3,000 feet and approximately 30 yards away from the aircraft. That's pretty close. <laughs> like in front? <laughs> I have no idea. But 3,000 feet? What the hell? Okay. They don't know who it is. I guess it could be a woman. He or she. Yeah. But or they. Wh- and then the same one, about 10 minutes later, a JetBlue pilot reported seeing the same thing. They don't know who it is or where they even got the jetpack. Because it's weird to see them at such high altitudes. Most jetpacks aren't equipped to go for very just a few minutes is all they have. Yeah, not three thousand feet, right? Right. Like, I mean, not a, yeah. You get up there, and then extremely far. I mean, don't you need like oxygen? You know, I don't know. Seems like you would need some. Yeah. <laughs> That's so scary. Yeah, it's very strange, and Do then um, and parachute? to be so close to the other aircrafts, I mean, it could get sucked yeah. into the jet engine. Yeah. Do they have a parachute? I don't know. I guess he just jetted away. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and then on October 14th, it was spotted again. This time, it was around 1.45 p.m. by China Airlines, and they reported seeing the jetpack at approximately 6,000 feet and seven miles northwest of Los Angeles International. Oh, my word. Apparently, the FFA, the FBI, and the local authorities are looking into it, but they're just, they're 
puzzled by the sighting because so they don't know who it is. And they're illegally flying in controlled airspace. Yeah. I looked it up and apparently there is a company in the San Fernando Valley called Jetpack Aviations. And they've invented what they call the world's only jetpack, which can reach altitudes of 15,000 feet. Um, But it only operates for about 10 minutes. So still not very long. You have to just go up and come back down, it seems like. Is that enough time to go up and come back down? That's what I'm wondering. I don't know. It says that uh, they don't sell the jetpack either. Like, it's not for commercial sale, but you can operate it in a controlled space after you take a three-week training course. So is that near where the planes are? It's in. Yeah, it is, actually. Maybe they're just, like, out of control, flying into, <clears throat> I don't know. Seems like they're in control if they're not crashing anywhere. Well, it seems like they'd have their own space to fly in. I don't know the rules of that. I guess we'll keep an eye out for more on that. Yeah. Like, how does that work? I own, I own this piece of air, so we can fly our jetpacks. Mm-hmm. How do you know where something is like a no-fly zone, or is a fly zone, or jetpack-only zone? I don't know. We'll need to get a jetpack. Uh-uh. I'm not doing that. So, no scary story from you yet. I'm working on it. Okay. I expect to be peeing myself. I'm so scared. You do that anyway. Shut up. I do not. Do you, You're going to go first today. Yeah. And my story is about reincarnation. Yep. It's a very loud bird outside. Yeah. Reincarnated from an asshole. Perhaps. So reincarnation. I've always been fascinated by that. So reincarnation. One of the mysteries puzzling the human mind since the origins of mankind is the concept of reincarnation. It is derived from Latin and literally means to take on the flesh again. Discussions of the subject appears in the philosophical traditions of India and Greece from about the 6th century BC. So what exactly is reincarnation? It, is, it simply means that we leave one life and go into another. It is all for the sole purpose of soul development and spiritual growth. The soul may take on the form of human, animal, or plant, depending on the moral quality of the previous life's actions. So is it real? Well, 33% of Americans think it is, and some 10% of them report being able to recall their own past lives, which I thought that seemed like a lot of people. Yeah, that's a lot of Americans. Yeah, that's a lot. That's not what I would have thought. Yeah. So one story was of a four-year-old who recalled his life as a Hollywood agent. In 2009, at the age of four, Ryan Hammonds began waking up, clutching his chest, and screaming about how his heart exploded in Hollywood. His mother, Cindy, became intrigued when Ryan revealed more details from his former life. He insisted he once lived in a house in Hollywood on a street with the name Rock in it, where he had three sons and a friend named Senator Fives. One day, Cindy was going through a book featuring photos of old Hollywood. Ryan peeked over her shoulder and excitedly identified one man as George and another one as himself. Cindy contacted a psychiatrist from UVA Medical Center who conducts research on reincarnation. The psychiatrist verified the man in the photo was of a film star named George Raft, and the other man was Martin Martin, who died in 1964. Upon contacting Martin's daughter, she confirmed Martin was a Hollywood agent, lived on North Roxbury Drive, and had three sons, 
and once met with New York Senator Irving Ives. Hmm. And how old is this kid? Uh, he was four. Okay. So he can't just obviously make that up. Right. He's probably not reading a whole lot. No, not at four. Unless he's super smart, like Sheldon Cooper smart. After meeting with Martin's daughter, Ryan lost interest in his Hollywood memories. He was standoffish at the meeting and told his mother afterwards his daughter's energy had changed. That's just a weird thing for a four-year-old to, like, say anyway. Mm -hmm. Even just making stuff up. Seems weird. How do you even know what that is? That's what I'm saying. It's just, yeah. It's kind of out there for a four-year-old. Yeah. Okay. Side note. Like, side thing. Just real quick. Do you remember, now this isn't about reincarnation, but do you remember when Devin was, I don't think that Taylor was born yet. He was around that age, like three to four. We had went trick-or-treating at a nursing home and we we went in and he was like looking around. He's all happy and fine. And he goes, where did my life go? I can't believe I'm here. Do you remember that happening? No. But he was fine. And even like my dad was like, What? I think he needs to not be here. But he was like, he wasn't like all depressed sounding. He was just like making these random comments that made no sense, but were very disturbingly sad because we were in this uh, nursing home. Like he'd been there before. Yeah. Or Mm. like he knew what they were feeling, like, or knew what somebody there was feeling. Where did my life go? Yeah. He didn't. It just started, sir. What are you doing? Yeah. (laughs) Kids are weird, man. I agree. (laughs) So the psychiatrist's explanation for this was uh, upon seeing people from their past have moved on, reincarnated children gain closure and forget their former existences. Dr. Tucker was a child psychiatrist in private practice when he heard about the reincarnation research being conducted by Ian Stevenson, MD, founder and director of the Division of Perceptual Studies at UVA. He was intrigued and began working with the division in 1996. Six years later, Dr. Stevenson retired and Dr. Tucker took over as the leader of the division's past life research. The UVA team has gathered more than 2,500 documented cases of children from all over the world who have detailed memories of their former lives, including that of a California toddler with a surprisingly good golf swing, who said he had once been legendary athlete Bobby Jones, a Midwestern five-year-old who shared some of the same memories and physical traits, such as blindness in his left eye and a mark on his neck as a long-deceased brother, and a girl in India who woke up one day speaking fluently in a dialect she'd never heard before. Dr. Tucker describes these cases in his book, Return to Life, Extraordinary Cases of Children Who Remember Their Past Lives. The children in the UVA collection typically begin talking about their previous lives when they were two or three years old and stopped by the age of six or seven. And Dr. Tucker says this is around the same time we lose all our memories of early childhood. So around six or seven, you forget. You You don't remember much before then. Okay. So when Dr. Tucker first, when he first learns about a subject, he checks for fraud, deliberate or unconscious, by asking two questions. Do the parents seem credible? And could the child have picked up the memories through TV, overheard conversations, or other ordinary means? 
if he can rule out fraud, he and his team interview the child and his or her family to get a detailed account about the previous life. Then the researchers try to find a deceased person whose life matches the memories. The last part is essential because otherwise this child's story would just be a fantasy. I imagine that's like pretty difficult to do if you're not famous. Yeah, I would agree. How to track down. I mean, if you know your name and maybe even your birthday, like whatever your past life was, maybe that makes it a little bit easier, but... Now, I guess it just depends on how much detail. Yeah, you're like able I guess that's one recall. of the things I'm wondering. They seem to really know a lot, but then close to three quarters of the cases investigated by the team are solved, meaning that a person from the past matching the child's memories is identified. In addition, nearly 20% of the kids in the UVA classes have naturally occurring marks or impairments that match scars and injuries on the past person. One boy who recalled being shot possessed two birthmarks, a large ragged one over his left eye and a small round one on the back of his head, which lined up like a bullet's entrance and exit wound. And you'll see that a lot in the cases that you read about. Mm -hmm. They'll have a birthmark or some kind of just blemish that coincides with an injury they're claiming killed them or happened to them in their past life. I've heard that too. So here's another story, and it's about two sisters that were killed in a car accident, and they were reincarnated as twins. I heard about this one. It's so interesting. John and Florence Pollock were devastated when their daughters, Joanna and Jacqueline, died in a car accident on May 5th, 1957. The following year, they were thrilled to hear that they were expecting, and Florence was carrying twins. The twins, Jillian and Jennifer were both identical except for Jennifer's birthmarks. She had a birthmark on her waist similar to the birthmark Jacqueline had and a birthmark on her forehead that resembled one of Jacqueline's scars. John and Florence moved away from their old home when their daughters were three months old. John and Florence told Jillian and Jennifer very little about the late sisters, but the girls seemed to share Joanna and Jacqueline's memories. They would request old toys that had belonged to the deceased children, recognize landmarks when traveling to their parents' former home, and were inexplicably terrified of cars. Upon seeing oncoming traffic, they would shriek, The car is coming to get us. Luckily, by the age of five, these frightening memories mostly faded away. The girls went on to live relatively normal adult lives. However, their story is still frequently cited as evidence of reincarnation. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's a cool story. I remember hearing that one. And I guess, and apparently, like, when they stopped remembering stuff was around that age, like five, six. But it was also when youngest had, like, passed on. There were no more memories to remember. Right. And so then they were just making their own. It was just sweet. To think that they came back to the same parents. To the same parents. Yeah. Well, and if they'd never heard about it either, it's, it's weird to be making stuff up. Like, yeah, why would you? They uh, they wouldn't know to do that. So there's another account of a six-year-old claiming to be the reincarnation of a man from a nearby village. At the age of one and a half, Nazi al-Danaf of Lebanon shocked his parents. He declared, I am not small. I am big. He insisted he had many weapons, including grenades, and lived in a nearby village. As time went on, Nazi continually requested to be taken to his old home in a village 
10 miles away. When he was six years old, his parents granted this request and Nazee located Nadia Kadij's home. Kadij spoke with Nazee at length and became convinced he was the reincarnation of her husband, Fahd Assad Kadij. She was astounded when Nazee answered her questions correctly. He remembered who built the foundation of their home, the specifics of the accident when she dislocated her shoulder, and an incident where the daughter became ill from ingesting medication. When Nazee's alleged former wife invited him into her home, he quickly ran to the cupboard to search for his weapons. He ain't hugging nobody. He's just... My gun's still there? <laughs> He's just looking for his weapons. This was the exact cupboard where her deceased husband had kept his guns and grenades. <laughs> Did she move them? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. guess she didn't need them anymore. Who doesn't need a grenade? Literally everybody. I guess you could just bury it in the yard if you don't need it anymore. I don't think that's appropriate. That's how you dispose of grenades. Really? No. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> don't do that. That's irresponsible, Wendy. Oh, wait. Army people were like, what a dummy. <laughs> <laughs> there are thousands of cases of reincarnation, with most of these cases being documented in Asian countries with large religious Hindu-Buddhist population. Culturally speaking, however, reincarnation is not an entirely Eastern belief. The ancient Greeks, for example, believed in the river Leith that the dead were required to drink from in order to wipe their memories clean before being reincarnated. Purnima of Sri Lanka was born with unusual birthmarks dotting her lower rib and chest. At a young age, she began speaking of a past life. After a school trip to the temple, 145 miles away, Purnima insisted she lived in the town across the river from the temple. She claimed she was once a male incense maker who died in a traffic accident. Purnima's father traveled with his brother-in-law to the town in question and asked around about local incense makers and found the name Jenadasa. Jenadasa had been an incense maker who died when he was hit by a bus while riding his bicycle. Purnima's family took her to Jenadasa's home where she was able to identify his wife and daughter and the name of the school Jenadasa attended. Purnima's family had no prior contact or connection with Jenadasa's family. It is difficult to explain how she got such specific information correct. Jenadasa's autopsy report showed several fractures and bruises from the accident that ran along his lower rib and left side. And so these were in the same spots as the girl's unusual birthmarks. Oh. They matched the autopsy report. Now, this next story is largely based on rumors, but I thought it was interesting, so I'm going to tell it. Allegedly, a three-year-old boy from Golan Heights near Syria was born with a red birthmark on his forehead. He claimed this was from being murdered in his past life. Physician Dr. Eli Lash claims to have investigated the story. Lash took the boy from city to city in Israel until the boy recognized the village. He walked around the town for quite some time before approaching a strange man and saying, I used to be your neighbor. We had a fight and you killed me with an axe. What in the world? Okay. This boy's three years old, allegedly. That's amazing. Like, what if everybody that was murdered could come back and identify their killer? Probably get killed for being a snitch. Not if you're a kid, man. Then the boy led Lash and the accused man to a spot where he claimed to have been buried. A skeleton was found in the ground with a wound in the skull corresponding to the boy's birthmark. 
the man accused eventually confessed of having murdered his neighbor four years prior. Oh my gosh. That's so cool. Okay, last one. This is the past life of a fighter pilot. Eight-year-old James Leniger of Louisiana began talking about aviation at two years old. His parents reportedly knew nothing about the subject and were amazed when their little boy started displaying such an extensive knowledge of planes. Their amazement turned into alarm when James started having nightmares about being shot down by a plane with a red sun on it. So it sounds like a Japanese fighter plane, right? It does. He talked about having dreams and memories of being Lieutenant James McCready Hudson, a World War II fighter pilot from Pennsylvania who had been killed in Iwo Jima more than 50 years earlier. Andrea, his mother, said that James would scream at the top of his voice, Airplane crash! On fire! Can't get out! Help! As he kicked and pointed to the ceiling. Later, James told his parents that he'd flown a plane called the Corsair from a boat called the Natoma. When James's father decided to do some research, he discovered that there had been a small escort carrier called the Natoma Bay, which had been in the Battle of Iwo Jima, and that there really had been a pilot called James Hudson. His plane was hit in the engine by Japanese fire on March 3, 1945. According to Jim Tucker, a psychologist at the University of Virginia, Hudson's plane crashed exactly the way young James had described. Wow. So he's having some pretty vivid nightmares about it. Oh my gosh. Of all the things to remember, it's being in war. So why is reincarnation so fascinating? Part of reincarnation's appeal has to do with its hopeful underlying promise that we can do better in our next lives. With reincarnation, there is always another opportunity, explains Stafford Betty, a professor of religious studies at California State University, Bakersfield and the author of The Afterlife Unveiled. The universe takes on a merciful hue. It's a great improvement over the doctrine of eternal hell. That is true. So people want to believe it more. Well, because based on whatever, however you lived is going to be how you come back. Right. And could you imagine like coming back as a dung beetle and you're going to push your poop around? I think if you were a dung beetle, you'd be... Very happy to find big poops. I guess, but but then you remembered that at one point you was a human? I mean, how long is a dung beetle's memory? I have no idea. Can't be that long. I mean, it's got to be up at least six minutes. Yeah. I, I don't know how long they live. <laughs> <laughs> six months? That would make sense. I'd rather come back, either have a second chance, than uh, spend eternity in hell. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, if you get a do-over. So, when I was little, I specifically remember thinking, if I die, I want to come back as a cat. Because they got to do all kinds of stuff, and they pranced around, and they got to climb up stuff, and it just seemed great. I think a lot of people probably would love to come back as a cat. You don't have to do anything. Well, it depends on what type of cat you are and where you're at. But I realized that our daughter was definitely my kid when her first thought was, if I die, I'm going to come back as a cat. Like, you are my kid. We are going to be cats together. Our cats barely get to walk because everyone's carrying them around all the time. They love it. Do they? Yeah. I mean, well, it's only Loki that gets carried around the most. Yeah. And then the new baby, mm-hmm. Maeve. But I just wanted to share. Like, I knew that Taylor was definitely my kid. Like, I, as if I didn't know. Yeah. Um, When she wanted to be a cat, too. 
<laughs> Which I thought was funny. Well, I think that was great. That's, it's always interesting. I always like to hear stories like that. It's such a weird thing, especially for kids, because it's always kids that remember that. It's not adults. Mm-hmm. And it's things that they, there's no way that they would know how to say those things or, you know, certain phrases or just names and stuff like that. Yeah. Just to be so young and have those type of thoughts of being murdered and stuff and not really exposed to that type of yeah. thing yet. And probably. apparently the kid wasn't scared. It didn't seem like it. Yeah. The kid wanted to make sure like, hey, you killed me, like wanted to confront them. Also, like, where's my guns and my bombs? What's happening? I need my grenades back. That amazes me. Push right past the wife. Like, <laughs> Did you sell my guns? Where's all my stuff? <laughs> That's so weird. Jeez. So what's your story? It's my turn. I'm so excited. Are you? You, oh. you look excited. I want you to close your eyes. Okay. And actually do it for real because I'm looking at you. Yeah, I'm doing it. Would you close your eyes. Mm-hmm. I want you to go back to the early 90s. Okay. Okay. And you are... A blonde-haired little girl. Hmm, This is difficult for me, but continue. (laughs) You're a blonde-haired little girl at Greenbrier Elementary Uh in Robertson County, Tennessee. Okay. Okay. Your name is also Wendy. Yeah. It's probably like third grade. You're at school. You're in the library. Close your eyes. Okay, sorry. You're in the library. Okay. It's almost Halloween. You're so excited. Mm Mm-hmm. The librarian ushers you into this little closet-like room, the whole class. I'm getting nervous. And then they put on display these little slides. And then all of a sudden, you discover you love ghosts. Oh. And you love all things scary. And it's so much fun to be scared, but not real scared, like real life scared. But yeah, like you don't want to actually be in danger. Yes. All because they tell you the story of the Bell Witch. The Bell Witch. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Can I open my eyes? Yes. Okay. You can open your eyes. Just for reference. In Robertson County, I don't know if they still do it. I'm assuming they still do. In elementary school, it was about third or fourth grade. I'm pretty sure it was third grade because I had not had my head injury yet. The end of third and then like a lot of fourth and fifth grade, I missed it mm-hmm. due to surgeries and stuff. And I remember sitting in there scared to death, number one. And number two, when it was over, going to whoever was near me, I don't think that they were supposed to have shown this to us. Because it scared me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went home, and I'd rem- I remember telling my mom about it and telling her I was not going to sleep that night because I was so scared. And she was, like, laughing, thinking it was funny, and goes, yes, you are. And I was like, no, I'm not. And I didn't because I was scared because I knew the Bell Witch was coming. Mm-hmm. I don't. Why did I learn about her in school? But that's part of history. Yeah, you're not very far from her either. No, not there. Okay, so if you didn't know already, my story is going to be about the Bell Witch. Okay. Hopefully I do it justice. Probably won't because it's very detailed and I could not get that detailed. I didn't want to start boring everybody with dates and facts and history. It would take a long time. There's a lot to it. (laughs) There is a lot to it. But I just wanted to get right the gist of it. So my main sources are from the Tennessee State Library and Archives, uh, Tennessee Myths and Legends, also an authenticated history of the famous Bill Witch, the wonder of the 19th century and unexplained phenomenon of the Christian era by M.V. Ingram and Tennessee Historical Society, Year of the Witch, 1937 and the Return of the Bell Witch. The Bell family built a home and started a farm along the Red River in Robertson County, Tennessee in 1804. The family consisted of John and Lucy Bell and their children, Jesse, John Jr., Drury, also known as Drew, Benjamin, 
Esther Zadok, Elizabeth, also known as Betsy, Richard Williams, and Joel Egbert. The family was prosperous. They were active in their community, and they were very devout in their church community. Overall, they were the ideal family during that time. However, in 1817, the Bell family began to see strange animals on their property. I've seen documented that they owned 320 acres or they owned 1,000 acres. That is a huge difference. Either way, that is a lot of land. Yeah. John Bell was the first to witness a dog-like creature in one of his cornfields. When he fired at the creature, it vanished right in front of him. One of the sons, Drew, saw a bird of extraordinary size sitting on a fence post that led to the Bell home. When he shot at the bird, it also disappeared right in front of him, just like the creature his father saw in the cornfield. I like like that they're just seeing stuff and shooting at it. Right? (laughs) (laughs) What is that? Shoot it. Shortly after these occurrences, Betsy claimed to see a girl that she did not know in a green dress swinging from an oak tree. Who she shot, and it disappeared. I'm joking. She didn't. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting, too, because when I was talking about the... um, the ghostly women on that one episode. Uh-huh. Uh, green is a lot of times like a green dress is what they were seen in. Oh. Like the apparitions and stuff. So what's the symbolism of green, though? Do we know that? Well, it used to, like the devil wasn't. In red. You're in right. Red. It was green. That's right. It was later on they started depicting the devil as red and the fire and stuff like that. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. And that's mean. weird because that's something that you would I would associate it. I guess now, to something very earthy mm-hmm. and calm. Soon after these strange animal sightings, the family as a whole began to experience strange things in their home. They began to hear knocking on the door and windows. They could hear wings flapping against the ceiling. And they heard rats gnawing on the bedpost while they were trying to sleep. More disturbingly, they could hear a person choking as if they were being strangled. There was the sound of chains dragging and heavy objects hitting the floor. Sounds would emanate from the bedroom as if the beds were suddenly being pulled apart, to which was added the sounds of dogs fighting that were chained together, making the noise so loud that it was deafening to the family. Sources for all the noise and sounds could never be found. No rats were found in the home despite thorough searching, and no damage to the furniture was ever discovered. Just a bunch of racket. Just a bunch of racket. Hmm. The activity increased to physical abuse when members of the family were being hit repeatedly pinched, scratched, and suffered from hair pulling by an invisible attacker. Covers would be pulled from the beds while the children and family slept. All of these occurrences would continue almost nonstop until 2 or 3 in the morning. A majority of the family suffered from the abuse, but it was John Bell and Betsy Bell that suffered the most within the family. Lucy Bell and John Jr., however, were left relatively unharmed. The family suffered in silence for about a year before they confided in a family friend named James Johnston. Johnston and his wife stayed the night at the Bell home and were awakened by the same disturbances the family had been experiencing. Their bed covers were snatched from them while they were sleeping, and James was slapped repeatedly until he yelled at the spirit asking it what it wanted, but was then met with silence. He told John Bell the next morning that he was dealing with the spirit just like in the Bible. The spirit held a severe dislike for the family's slaves. It would often torment them relentlessly, beating them and refusing to allow them into the house. A particular slave named Dean stated he encountered the spirit several times when it appeared in the form of a large black dog or wolf. 
Sometimes it would have two heads and sometimes no head at all. Dean started to carry his axe and a witch ball made by his wife as protection from the witch's influence at all times. Eventually, the spirit started to speak. It wasn't uncommon for the spirit to sing hymns, quote scripture, and carry on conversations. It also had no issue with calling people names, cussing, and having an all-around dirty mouth. John Jr. apparently had long, intense conversations with the spirit, but also had no issue showing or saying how much he loathed the entity and would often declare it to be a spirit of the damned. The spirit was said to sing hymns to Lucy Bell and watch after her when she was sick. It often brought her fresh fruit, nuts, and berries. It even proclaimed that Lucy Bell was the most perfect woman to walk the earth. It's interesting how, like, you just assume Bible verses would repel a demon or anything, but it's quote it's quoting them. It's right. reciting parts of whatever this is. It's, yeah, it's quoting them. Like, knows it front to back, the hmm. Bible, anything. When asked who or what it was, it gave varying responses. One response was, I'm a spirit. I was once very happy, but have been disturbed. Another response, a spirit from everywhere, heaven, hell, the earth. I'm in the air, in houses, any place, at any time. I've been created millions of years. That is all I will tell you. The spirit also claimed to be the spirit of a person who had been buried nearby and whose bones had been disturbed when the bells were forming their land. It even stated it was the Bell's neighbor, Kate Batts. Unfortunately, this was what the majority believed. The majority of, like, the settlement, the community. Believed that it was the neighbor, Kate yep. Batts. And from that point on, the spirit was referred to as Kate, the Bell's witch. Which, in reality, really, nobody knows what it was or is. Like, they have no idea. Hmm. There was also Indian burial grounds, apparently, on some of the Bell land that were possibly disturbed in the process of them farming and stuff. Hmm. Kate Batts was an actual neighbor of the Bell family. She was often ridiculed by others in the community for being what they considered strange and loud. The story goes that Kate had a disagreement with John Bell over a business deal. Due to this dispute, Kate created the Bell Witch to seek revenge on the Bell family and even stated on her deathbed she would get even with John Bell. However, the business dispute actually occurred with her brother-in-law, Benjamin Batts, and Kate actually outlived John Bell by 23 years. So, so she wasn't even dead. No, she was very irritated. I only saw one thing that stated that she was extremely irritated and got very upset over the fact that people were saying that she was the cause of this. But didn't she curse him like at one of the, like a hearing or something, court but, hearing? But that was, with, no, it wasn't hers. It was the, the dispute was with the brother-in-law. Okay. Not her. And maybe she was there. Maybe she did. But curses aren't real. That's me. That's me. I'm going to put curses with psychic vampires. Bullshit. I thought we weren't cursing as much. Sorry. <laughs> and there you go, cursing already. Curses are real. Okay. Word began to spread all over about the strange occurrences on the Bell Farm. People would come from far and wide to see and experience these strange events themselves. Just for reference, the Bell family never turned anyone away, and they never asked for money or payment of any kind from people that came to experience or investigate the strangeness at their farm. So they were never compensated. They were not doing this for a buck. It was not a $2 looky-loo. People could come. They'd let them stay there and experience it and then move on. Did they donate stuff to them? I give them things anyway, though? I don't. I didn't see where that happened, but it was never like, oh. It wasn't promoting it. Yeah, there was no people promotion. People were just interested. Yeah. Yeah. 
One family friend named William Porter claimed the witch crawled into bed with him, which allowed him the opportunity to grab the spirit with the sheets and try to throw it into the fire. Unsuccessful, he stated the immense weight and terrible smell of it prevented him from succeeding doing this. I think he shit the bed and was trying to get rid of it, the evidence. <laughs> That'd be a good explanation. <laughs> I didn't think of it. You could just get away with it. I mean, I didn't see where anybody else smelt it, but okay. <laughs> I don't know. So an Englishman even stopped in to investigate the rumors. While speaking with the Bell family about his family and how they were overseas in England, the witch started to mimic the voices of his parents. I mean, exactly. Early the next morning, the witch began to mimic his parents' voices again, but this time they sounded really worried and they were discussing how they had heard his voice as well. He got super spooked. He left really quickly, not telling anybody bye, and later wrote to the Bell family apologizing for his skepticism. Apparently, the witch had visited his parents in England, and that's the reason it was able to mimic their voices and stuff. It does seem like it's everywhere. Yeah, super freaky. One famous story includes Andrew Jackson. So apparently Andrew Jackson visited the Bell Farm after hearing stories of the Bell Witch. As Jackson and his men were making their way to the farm, his wagon became stuck for no reason at all and would not move. Jackson reportedly stated, By the Eternal Boys, this is the witch. With the witch replying, All right, General, let the wagon move on. I will see you again tonight. Suddenly, the wagon began to move on its own accord, and Jackson and his men were able to move on. I'd have turned that wagon around. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Within Jackson's men was an apparent self-proclaimed witch hunter that stated he could kill the witch with a silver bullet he had in his possession. Later that night, the witch returned and, in front of Andrew Jackson, asked the witch hunter to shoot the gun. And when he tried, the gun would not fire. Then the witch hit the witch hunter grabbed him by the nose the whole time he was yelling that he was being stuck with needles. Once he was let go, he fled the tent and the witch told Jackson she would return the next night and show you another rascal in the crowd. However, Jackson and his men left shortly after this experience and returned to Nashville. So apparently, Jackson wanted to stay, but the men were super spooked. And so... Because we don't know who the rascal is they're going to point out. Exactly. Let's what's, just get out of here. What's, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. And so a side note, Andrew Jackson's home, the Hermitage, is also apparently haunted. And they do ghost tours. So um, it's haunted by Jackson himself. And it said that when visiting Rachel's tomb, Jackson's wife, who died, staff and visitors have heard footsteps, smelled tobacco, and seen the garden gate swing open all by itself. There's apparently a slave named Louisa who took care of Jackson Jr.'s children and is said to be seen in the little girl's room sitting on their bed from time to time. Like a guest has even apparently seen this and panicked and was upset because she thought they were trying to scare her on purpose. But there was nobody there. Uh, it's not even far from here. And I didn't realize no. that it's haunted. It's very haunted. Yeah. Like all over the place. Others have heard whistling when they were alone in the house and have heard what sounded like chains or something heavy being dragged across the front porch. So what if the witch did follow him? Like, what if the witch was like, hey, boo. Yeah. I live here now. Hey, boo. <laughs> yeah. As previously stated, the witch held a special distaste for John Bell and Betsy Bell. The witch was always finding new ways to torment Betsy. It got so bad that the family sent her to a friend's house to try and appease her suffering. 
On the first night she was there, the witch followed and made its presence known after everyone went to bed. It began knocking on the outside door, and then everyone felt a gust of wind as the door flew open. When they went to go see what's up, the door's closed, never been opened. Then all of a sudden, Betsy hears a voice tell her, You should not have come over here. You know I can follow you anywhere. Now get a good night's sleep. Betsy then stated a soft hand patted her on the cheek with the voice reassuring the room that they would not be disturbed anymore that night. And it was a peaceful night. Betsy was also engaged to marry a man named Joshua Gardner. However, for reasons still unknown today, the witch was against this union and would torment both of them with ruthless taunts and even physical abuse. Betsy eventually called off the engagement to Joshua in fear of what the witch may do to them if they did actually get married. She ended up marrying her old school teacher, Richard Powell, to the delight of the witch. She married her teacher? Yeah. So who was like way, old. way, way, way older than her. Ew. So it's kind of weird. I just want to state this. Like, it's so abusive to her, but then she leaves just to get a night's rest, and it's nice to her. You know, I could still torment you, but get, get some rest. I need you in peak form when I come back and punch you in the mouth. The same time that the witch started appearing to John Bell and his family, John started to have instances where he would experience paralysis of the face, as well as numbness and tingling, and would often feel like his throat was swelling shut. He would fall victim to these frequent bouts of illness, which the witch happily claimed responsibility for. So, laying sick in bed, twitching and jerking, the spirit would curse him continuously until finally wearing him down to the point that he went to bed and then... And he never recovered. He never got back out of the bed. His family found him in a stupor on the morning of December the 19th, 1820. A strange bottle was found in the medicine cabinet, and when the liquid was given to a cat, the animal went into convulsions and died. The witch declared that she had poisoned him while he was asleep with a big old dose. Bell died the next morning on December 20th, 1820. The witch apparently shrieking in triumph. So they just tested the liquid on the cat? Yeah. I guess just the fan. I mean... Maybe they had a bunch. So there is a lot of torment it's a, that a led lot. up to the years. Yes. It's like from 1817 to about 1820. It's the most active. It's the most active. So during John Bell's funeral, the witch loudly laughed and sang throughout the service. It apparently didn't stop until everyone was gone from the graveyard. Could you imagine being at a funeral and even an entity, a witch, a spirit? It's very bold. Just doesn't care who knows about it. I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah, I mean. (laughs) After John's death and Betsy calling off her engagement to Joshua Gardner, the witch's torment began to fade away. In 1821, the witch told Lucy Bell that it was leaving and would return in seven years. True to its word, it returned in February 1828, similar to how it first appeared with unexplained noises. The family mainly ignored the witch during this time, and it did end up leaving after around two weeks. But during the visit, it discussed current events with John Jr. and apparently predicted the Civil War and both World Wars. The spirit claimed that there was a need for a mass spiritual awakening, and before leaving, the witch claimed it would return in 107 years, which would have been in 1935. However, there's been no evidence presented from the family that the witch ever returned. When the witch left, it is believed that she retreated to a cave that was on the Bell property, The cave still exists, and you can visit and tour the cave. People say that the cave is haunted, and it has all the bells and whistles associated with it, like, don't take rocks or you'll be sorry. Don't say bad stuff about the bell witch in the cave or you'll be sorry. Sign this release form or you'll be sorry. When I went, we didn't sign release forms. I just want to say that. 
So I think it's changed hands. Yeah. People who have taken the tour have reported hearing babies crying, women screaming, loud footsteps, foul odors, heavy breathing, and glowing orbs. Now, I personally, I was born in Springfield, and so I lived there for a little bit, and then I lived in Greenbrier for a little while before I ended up coming up to Gallatin. I was always told, like from the old people in the family, that the town of Adams itself is haunted. Once the witch left and apparently went to the cave, it was everywhere, and like there was nobody safe. I don't remember hearing like physical abuse occurring. The people within the town experienced unexplained phenomena, like just creepy occurrences and events. The Bell family descendants still experience strange occurrences from time to time that cannot be easily explained. I think just like talking about it so much and it being just ingrained in the town itself. Yeah. The memory and like people talking about it gives it energy. It's weird because if anybody that has family that just lives in Springfield has some sort of story usually, especially if they have a long line of descendants, there's always a story related to this. I did find an article from Fox 17 uh, where they had interviewed Bob Bell, who is a a direct descendant, and he actually owns a local funeral home in Springfield. And he had told them like two quick stories about one where his grandmother had called terrified saying, come to the house quick. And he stated, when we got there, we looked at the butler's pantry and the doors were open. Every single piece of china had crashed on the kitchen floor. They fell from about eight feet up and they were covering the floor, but every single piece was still intact. None of it was broke. It was just all scattered on the floor. And then he had an experience where it was in the same house and it was so bad that he had locked himself in the bedroom. And he states, I heard the footsteps come all the way to the the door and stop. The hair on my neck stood up. I grabbed a bat, jumped out into the hallway, but there was no one there. Says, I'm here to tell you someone was in the house. Later, he had he did state that he had found an old Bell family Bible, and he ended up getting rid of it. And when he, he states when he got rid of it, he hasn't experienced anything since then. I wonder how he got rid of it. I don't know. Maybe he gave it to somebody? Like, here, cousin. Take this. You're having a great life. <laughs> Take this. But could have sold that on eBay. Somebody would have bought it. It doesn't seem like he would be that callous about it. Like... Why would you want to sell something like that and give somebody bad juju? But there are members of the family. A lot of them don't talk about it. They refuse to talk about it. Even now, like, it is not talked about. They don't make jokes about it. They don't crack jokes about the witch. It's very, like, superstitious in the sense of, like, they keep in their distance of it. But it's also, they've all experienced things, apparently. It's just, like, part of it. Well, that's that's the thing. Like, the last time you said that the the witch... Then they just ignored it, right? And they it kind left. of just ignored it. They le- think, it left quickly after that. And I think it depends on what the what is the experience. I think everybody can say that they've had an experience occur that was kind of unexplainable. I think it's more if you're open to it, then you're going to notice and experience those things more compared to somebody who is a huge skeptic and can find flaws in the reasoning for everything. Yeah. Or just be like, nope, that's obviously a light switch and you need to change your wiring or something like that. But I think if you're more open, you're going to experience those things. And it's obviously very well ingrained in them. So I do have a few stories that are events or firsthand accounts of the Bell Witch. I had to search for them. That these were the ones I thought were the the best. A group from the local Epworth League were reported to have attended a wiener roast in a rock quarry that was near the Bell Witch Cave. This was on July the 29th of 1937. 
The group were joking about the legend when they saw a figure of a woman sitting on top of the cliff over the cave and causing most of them to flee because they were freaking out because there's this woman. Right. According to the newspaper, a minister in the group later claimed to have investigated and discovered it was moonlight on a rock. A second report concluded with a weather report that the moon was barely noticeable that night, so it couldn't have been the moon. In 2015, Jim Brooks published that his mother was in attendance at that roast and related that the minister caught up to the youths that were on the road to town after discovering no explanation for the figure. So there really was nothing. So he may have just been trying to ease people's minds. It was just the moonlight, but he really had no explanation. So in 1977, Bonnie Hainline recounted a time during her childhood in 1944 when she was exploring the cave. She left English class early, playing hooky, and borrowed a lantern from Mrs. Garrison, the cave owner. She reported to have explored the cave with her friends for several years. But while she was inside on this day by herself, her lantern blew out despite no breeze inside the cave. She managed to relight the lantern, and it blew out again. So terrified, she crawled along the water path of the cave in the dark until she reached the entrance where she saw an open can of pork and beans and marshmallows. Later that evening, she learned law enforcement discovered two escaped fugitives in the back of the cave. She credited the witch with helping her avoid them. That's a pretty good one. Yeah, that's... That's interesting, too, because more the Bell Witch story of she was very kind, or it was very kind to the mother and helpful... In 1977, there were five soldiers from the nearby Fort Campbell that visited the Bellwitch Cave. One of the soldiers was sitting on a rock and expressed his skepticism of the legend when apparently something invisible grabbed him around the chest, and they left. In 1986, a staff writer for the Tennessean, David Gerard, and a photographer, Bill Wilson, were given permission to sleep in the cave overnight. So Bill Wilson was also a member of the National, I'm going to try to say it, National Speleological Society. They were spelunkers. Okay. Say that right? <laughs> yeah. They were cave people. And so they were given permission to stay the night. While in the first cave room, they heard a noise from deeper in the cave. Gerard had estimated at about 30 yards away. Subsequently, an unwavering groan repeated again with a greater volume and accompanied by several loud thumps. When it began a third time, the men retreated to the, ca- to the gate entrance. They explored the wiring to the lights, looking for a reason for the noises. They went back to the first cave room, but heard a rumble near the entrance. Walking back to the entrance, they discovered the rumble was the noise from a jet. As they reached the gate, a loud, high-pitched scream emanated from inside the cave, and the journalists left, and they did not spend the night. I don't blame them. What if it was just a bobcat? I decided I blame everything on What is now. it with you and bobcats? They just, they're screaming like women. They do. They sound like a woman's scream. Or a baby. Mm-hmm. Like, what if there's, like, one in there? Like, what if there's another way to get in, and it's, like, probably miles away, but you're just hearing the echo of it? This is my last story. This is my favorite one. I'm ready. In 1987, H.C. Sanders, owner of a nearby gas station, reported 20 years earlier that he had ran out of gas at night near the Red River across from the Bellwitch Cave. He began to walk towards town when a rabbit came out of the woods and began to follow him. Sanders walked faster, but the rabbit kept pace even as he broke out into a run. After a mile, Sanders sat down on a log to catch his breath. The rabbit hopped up on the other side of the log, looked at him, and said, 
Hell of a rice we had there, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like he ran out of gas and mushrooms. (laughs) Like, sir, what were you doing? I don't know. But that one was, I thought was fun at least. (laughs) (laughs) So that is a very small history of the Bell Witch. Good job. That was great. This is what started my whole loving spooky stuff. Yeah. Like big time. Other than the fact that my Aunt Diana used to let me watch all the scary movies from the time since I can remember watching movies. Probably shouldn't have been watching those movies, but she let me. Do you believe in ghosts? I do believe in ghosts, yes. Yeah. Is it because we have a peek around ghost? No. No? Well, no, but I I know what you're talking about. Sometimes (laughs) I see that too, but I don't know that you think everything is haunted. I do not. You do. God, you're telling my dad. No, I don't. I don't think everything is haunted, although he says it follows me. That it's not... um... Oh, maybe that's what it is. (laughs) Maybe it's haunting you. But I've never had a bad experience. Mm -hmm. I've had weird things. So I'm going to tell y'all, there was a time. I was at home. This has been a few years ago. I was at home with one of the boys. It was James. I can't remember if he was sick or something. I think he was. Wasn't at school. I was sitting in the living room. He had gotten... He got sent to his room for being ugly and he was in there in timeout. So I'm sitting there and he had been so upset over whatever it was, acting like a little butt. He ended up falling asleep. But as I'm sitting there, he hadn't been in there for very long. And I'm sitting there and the cat is on the arm of the chair beside me. And out of the corner of my eye, I see something peek around the corner into the living room. And it was like, but it was white, whatever it was. But the cat noticed it too. It wasn't just me. So Timber, the cat, Mm -hmm. jumps off the chair, and he's very slowly going to investigate. Now, it's weird because he's scared of everything. He goes to investigate. I wait before I get up. He comes running past and into the kitchen and going into the sunroom. And I'm like, what is up? And so I go and I look at him, and he's just like looking all wide-eyed and weird catty. And so then I go to look at James. Like, what is James doing? Because honestly, it's James peeking. He's ready to come out of his room. That's fine. He's fast asleep in his bed. Sound asleep. Yeah. And I even went and poked him. He's asleep. He wasn't faking it. No, he wasn't faking. And so I come and I sit back down where Timber is still acting weird. He ends up going back towards the boys' room. I can hear him in there. He's growling and making noise. And so I'm like, well, what in the world? Maybe James was faking. So I get up and he's just staring at the boys' room, like at in the doorway. And he is growling and hissing and there is nothing there. James is sound asleep. But I've never felt threatened by anything. Because I did look it up, and it says that things that are peeking around corners are apparently, like, supposed to be dangerous. But I've never felt like anything was dangerous. I thought I was just curious. Well, and we have an older house. There is times when I distinctly smell... Smoke. Cigarette smoke. Yes. Well, since we moved in, a lot of times in the kitchen. It's in the kitchen near the bathroom and stuff, like this one little area, and it mm. smells heavy like smoke. Very strong. Yeah, like freshly lit. Like yeah. you thought someone was living in our attic and made me go and look. Yeah, or under the house it made you look because it's weird. And it because, like, that area is in the middle of the house. Like, where is it coming from? Right. Okay, well, that's all I've got for today. So until next time, subscribe, rate us. If you're being haunted. Oh, tell me stories about haunted stuff. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I well, I was going to say maybe give them something to do, some chores. That don't even make sense. Embrace it. Embrace it? I don't think you're supposed to. I think you're supposed to ignore it. And that does kind of go away. Maybe you like being slapped around. No. Happy Halloween. There you go.
Bye. Until next time, fellow Absurdians, remember, everything you've heard is true, monsters are real, and the strangers in black are not a figment of your imagination. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service. Do you have a story you want to share? Contact us at eerieandabsurd at gmail.com or visit our website at eerieandabsurd.com to submit a suggestion. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both at eerie underscore absurd.